Welcome to Humans of Twitter, a podcast where we discover the stories behind the people behind the Twitter accounts. People that are interesting, opinionated, and surprising. I'm your host, Steve Malk, and today I'm speaking with someone who describes themselves as writer, radio and TV presenter, podcaster. Download my guide to podcasting at podcastguide.com.au. Humans of Twitter is their stories in their words in a little more than 140 characters. Please welcome today's edition to the Humans of Twitter list, Rachel Corbett. Hi there. Good to be here. I'm excited. We've been trying to line this up for a while, Malk. It feels like a millennia in the making, Rach. I know, but I feel like we're here and we're excited, we're ready, and the the time feels right to me. I feel like it's taken us a while, but it feels right now. The nation have been expecting this conversation. Let's lay it on them hard. (laughs) All right, let's do it. I'm ready. Rach, in social settings, how do you introduce yourself? Um, I, you mean in terms of like my title of what I say I do? Sure. Um, I, I say I'm a writer now. That's mm-hmm. kind of the way that I introduce myself. Um, and I guess because I'm a bit, I'm, ha- I'm in that sort of freelance stew where mm-hmm. like I do a lot of different things, but no one thing sort of dominates. But there's something I guess I like about calling myself a writer, I think. So that's how I introduce myself. It's all very nice and, you know, Hunter S. Thompson-esque. But it's not all whiskey and sort of, (laughs) you know, late nights with a pen and paper. It's kind of more madly rushing to meet a deadline and trying to find something that's mildly entertaining to write about. Quick, who's it something offensive that I can have a counterpoint argument for now? This is what we're talking about. (laughs) Oh, the the life of the modern columnist and opinion writer. I know, I know. You can't please everybody. That's the issue. Are you enjoying it? Love it. Yeah, I love it. It was years ago I had I was doing bits and pieces of writing and for some reason I I remember having a conversation I can't remember who it was but I I said to them and that was when I was doing a lot of radio a tiny bit of TV and something but there was just something about writing that have, has always attracted me and that I've always enjoyed and I remember saying to this person I, I want to get to the stage where I can call myself a writer. So mm. it was a bit of a long process to get there because obviously you have to have written a fairly large amount of sort of articles and actually be employed to write to, to sort of get to that stage. But I, I'm now eventually at that stage and, and any writer will tell you that the process of writing, like I don't like writing but I love having written, you know, like yes. I love it when the thing's done and you're like, oh, but when you're in it, it can really be just not a super enjoyable sort of task. Yeah. But once you've actually yes. spewed it out and the page isn't blank anymore, then you go, you've forgotten it. It's like childbirth, you know. Mm. You go, oh, God, that was, that was such a cinch. I'm going to do this again. No, it's like it childbirth. I've forgotten it. <laughs> yeah, I forgot how painful it was. Oh, let's give it another crack. <laughs> <laughs> the population of the world depends on that though, Rach. Mm, I know, I know. It doesn't depend on writers though. <laughs> oh, no. Quite the opposite, I think. Just as we need to have procreation take place, I think that we need people to tell our stories, whether they are admittedly written or talked about in a digital form or on the television or wherever. You're really making me feel important and I appreciate that greatly. (laughs) It's my job. That's what I'm here to do. Thanks. (laughs) Rach, what was school like for you? Geez, it was interesting actually. I did enjoy school up until a point. 
Um, mm. I was always a very involved school kid. Like I really liked to learn and I liked to study and I liked to kind of um, – I was a pretty applied kid. Yes. But I also was a like classic jack-of-all-trades, master of none. I would sign my name up to every mm. single activity board and do a mediocre at best job of every single activity, but I still gave it a damn good try. Yes. So I was sort of partially all right at a lot of things and not very excellent at anything um, but I really enjoyed school up until a point and I, it was kind of like the turning point for me was around about year 11 where I started to not really buy the whole this is all there is to kind of life view you know I started yeah. to realize actually there's a lot of people in here that that seemed quite closed-minded. Like I was feeling like I was trying to open my mind a lot to a lot of different things. And that's why when I went out into university and I met all these people who, you know, were just so different. You know, I went to a private girls' school so you get a certain type of person uh, and that's just about it in that environment. And when I went to university, I was so hungry for people who had different sexualities, interests, you know, different backgrounds, that mm. kind of stuff that I felt was really lacking in my in my school environment. And it really wasn't until sort of later on in the later years that I, that I recognised that when I was in school. And I, I remember really being quite keen in the last year to sort of to get out, um, I felt quite trapped in the last year, I think. But um, yeah. but up until that point, I really I really in, enjoyed it. I, I like to I like to learn, and I also like the fact that everything was kind of, you know, I'm I, as I said, I'm an activity kid. I like the fact that all you had to do was sign up to something on a notice board. I wish life was like that, you know? I wish there was a notice board outside my house and I didn't have to do any other work but just somebody would say, here's 10 activities, just sign up to whatever ones you like and it's as easy as pie. Um, but it's a lot more difficult than that in real life. You just described the House of Representatives. <laughs> I did indeed. <laughs> here's the thing. Do you want to come and do that? Sure. That sounds yeah. great. Will, the gov- will, will people pay for it? Yes. Maybe I should get into politics. <laughs> Look, it's it's uh, a well that uh, would love to be tapped, I'm sure, would need a bit of Corbett in its life. Mm, goodness, I don't know whether I could deal with that. I've often thought that the idea of going into politics for those sort of um, noble reasons mm. would be great, but I just couldn't work with the peeps that work down there. You know, I just really mm. struggle. I look around Canberra and I go, I don't think there's a lot of people I'd want to sit with at the lunch table around, <laughs> around here, so I don't think I'll get into politics just yet. Well, and, and look, they're probably thinking, oh, Rachel, she's a little bit intimidating. We don't know if we want to sit next to her. <laughs> I think they're probably just thinking they're lucky stars that I'm not down. They probably look at me the same way I look at them. Like, thank God that girl's down, not, not down here. <laughs> were your, well, Rach, the activity queen, was in her element. Mm. Were your parents sort of invested trying to nudge you anywhere or were they, look, she's busy, that's enough, let's leave her alone? How, how connected were they during that phase of your life? I think that they, oh God, I think that my love of uh, an activity was, um, you know, that they had financial issues with it for a start because unfortunately every every activity I chose cost them another 350 bucks oh, yeah. or something ridiculous for the equipment and whatever. So I think that they, you know, would they wished that I wasn't so interested in it, but they were always, particularly my mum, she was just so... 
um, supportive. And I think because, yep. you know, she was one of those quintessential, like, I want my daughters to have a better life than I did um, have person. So yes. she really, she passionately wanted me to go to this school that we went to, which was a private girls school, because she wanted us to have all of these opportunities. So I really like my parents really financially struggled big time to keep me at that school, but they did everything that they could to make sure that I didn't have to leave, um, which meant serious, serious sacrifice, particularly on the part of my mum. And, you know, so they were really, really supportive, my mum in particular. You know, I just remember the one thing that the most important and slightly frustrating piece of advice that she gave me when I was little was she used to always say, she'd repeat all the time, you can do anything. You can be anything, like Mm. anything you want to do, anything you want to be, you can do it. And that is such a wonderful piece of advice, but so terrible when you take it literally because I've given that a red hot crack. (laughs) I've really tried everything and I feel like, God, why didn't you just tell me just be a doctor, be want to be a doctor or, you know, want to be this one thing because my great problem has always been schizophrenia in terms of interests, you know. So, Mm. and I feel like that was part of mum saying that you could be anything. Um, I've tried, I've tried, I've failed a lot of things, but that was certainly one of the things that I remember and that's definitely one of the things that I will be sure to tell my kids as well because I think it's a really important thing to for little ones to know you know that that Mm. like anything is possible so yeah they were very supportive yeah Rach you can do anything as long as it's being a doctor (laughs) yeah that's it I wish they'd given me some parameters I'm like anything because I've tried everything I auditioned for circus school like I've really tried everything are you serious yeah I did years ago oh my god it's so embarrassing they I'm sure that they just thought what are you doing here? You know, I'm auditioning with people who can basically tie themselves into a pretzel and I'm sitting there like trying to touch my toes. I just, I went through a very weird phase. I went through a very weird phase. I got out of it eventually, but I truly have, you know, I've worked as a diver, I worked as a diver in Honduras for a while. You know, I just, I really have given it everything. <laughs> Holy crap, Rachel Corbett. Yeah. Oh, no, I know. It's, yeah, it looks, it sounds so exciting, but really, mate, I was lost. I was so lost. <laughs> well, when, when did that come into focus for you? When, when did you go, so, yeah, this is the thing I want to do? I think when I was away, so I went overseas for a couple of years and I was away for a long time and I always felt before I left that I would always sort of prosper overseas. I thought I was a bit of a, I need to get out of here and leave and and move on and make a new life somewhere else. Yeah, this two-bit country. Yeah, that's it, that's it. And actually what, what the years away taught me was that like how much I love being here. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it was kind of at the end of that trip, I was so sick of being the transient person that didn't like was coming through and seeing friends and meeting people who had existing lives and interests and were making successes of themselves in the places that I was visiting. And I was just passing through and I got to that stage where I just thought, God, I don't want to be the person that's just passing through. Like I want to be the person that has their roots somewhere and yeah. is building something and moving somewhere. And, and so that was, you know, by the time I got to the end of that trip, that's when it really focused for me because I thought, no, I, I want to come home and I, I want to do this. You know, I wanted to 
get back into radio and I'd sort of had a, a couple of not so great experiences and so I thought that I wanted to leave the industry and you know I thought no actually I, I enjoy it I like the work I want to do it and I want to come back and, and do it some more and so um, so that was kind of when that sort of crystallized from for me to come back home and to sort of make a, a crack of it but I certainly sort of made the decision that I was going to be in Sydney my hometown yeah. from that point on because I'd traveled a lot for for work up until that point and so I decided I'm going to you know try and make it work in, at home and this was this wasn't like um this wasn't before you got into radio this is you've had some stints on radio Rach you know more of Rach trying out life mm. um and, yeah, so- and yeah. I took a bit of a I, – I was doing a, a full-time show. I, I'd been working sort of at that point for maybe three, four years or something and it was kind of at the time where I'd just done a two-year um, two year stint. I was on the Central Coast and, you know, it was time to sort of sign for another two years and I just thought I'm not happy here, you know. Mm. I, I don't – and I also at that stage I was kind of – I must have been 24 or 25, um, 25 I think, and I, I realised, you know, I had gotten into radio quite young and I knew that it was kind of now or never to travel. I'd always wanted to travel and I hadn't really done that. And so I thought, well, I need to go now. Otherwise, I'll just keep doing this forever and I'll always regret that I never went and never did it. So, yeah, I'd already done that and then I came back and sort of started it ticking again. So how how do you find the opportunity to get back into radio? Was it just that you didn't, you know, leave the place in flames when you walked out? that you still had those contexts to say, hey, I'm back and I, I'm doing a thing or you, you, you know, you went and knocked on doors because that's a tough gig for people to try and get into radio, let alone leaving it for a couple of years and yeah, then trying to get back into it. Mm, I had like I still had some good contacts because that's one thing I've never burned any bridges you know yeah. I've I've certainly left uh, you know and changed jobs a lot of times but you know I've never I've never left anything that I've ever done without anything but you know really good relationships and and the nature of the business is you know you you things change all the time contracts yeah. come and go shows finish for reasons that make sense or don't make sense you know there's there's no rhyme or reason often to the business so it you know there's a lot of changes that happen all the time so when I got home home um i sort of got dusted off the old demo and uh and Mm. sort of sent it around cd style because it was we were back in sort of cd it was still sort of sending things set by via cd and um i sent it out to some of my contacts and of course this is always the way to do it send out things when you don't really want to go because what I turned did is <laughs> I turned up to Sydney and it was like you know I'm like a baby born into this town I'm like it's like I'm seeing it with fresh eyes for the first time I'm like I never want to leave this place it's the best place I've ever been I love it I was so happy to be home and yep. I sent my sort of CDs around and the first call I got was to go over and do breakfast with Whip- Whipper uh, in Perth at 92.9 <laughs> Yes. And of course, I didn't know I didn't know Whipper at the time or anything. Mm. And I and I had a real moment where I spoke to the boss there, and I was like, "Oh, I just don't know if I can do it." And he said to me, "Why did you send me your CD?" I'm mm. like, that is an excellent, excellent point. He's like, if you don't want the work, then don't put yourself out there for it. And I was like, okay, no worries, I'll get on a plane. So I ended up getting on a plane and going and went over there for three months just to fill in for a, a maternity contract. So it wasn't yeah. forever. Yeah, yeah. Forever. And actually, I lo- like, I loved it. I lo- Whipper and I got along so well. We had such a good time on air. Um, and I'm so grateful that I went over and had that experience. My best friend, uh, she moved over there with me and we lived there for three months and had a, a, an absolute Absolute blast. So I'm really, really glad that I did it. But at the time, I just remember thinking, 
oh god, I, you know, but of course it's like careful what you wish for, you mm. know, because that's a, it actually comes true sometimes. Yeah, for sure. So in all of this public life that you have lived and live, mm-hmm. and yet you know, you maintain a pretty reasonable social presence as well. I think that's almost part of the job unwritten these days anyway. Where's the line between public and private for you? Hmm. I'm pretty good at that, um, at that line because I'm just so terrible at social media. You know, I've <laughs> never taken a selfie. Yep. I, you know, when I'm doing things, cause you know, in this, in the nature of the business in which I work is that, you know, you're doing constantly interesting things all of the time. And there are a lot of people that if they are savvy with social media would probably walk beside me during a day and say, Oh, you could tweet that or Instagram that or put that on Facebook, but I get to the end of the day, do all these things and then go, oh, there were probably a bunch of things I could have taken a photo of, but I was too busy sort of in the moment. So I'm very good at keeping a lot of things just private, just for the sake of the fact that I just suck at social media. So (laughs) I I really try. I try to be good at it and I try and, you know, because I think, okay, I'm supposed to, if I write these articles and I do this stuff, then I'm supposed to sort of share it. That's the point, right? That's what people do. But Mm -hmm. it's certainly something that I that doesn't come naturally to me and that I literally have to sit down and say, right, Rachel, now you are going to like take links from articles that you've written and try and put them in a calendar of tweets. Like it's a real sort of sit down and do this rather than a, oh, this would be a great time to take a selfie. I mean, Snapchat, don't even get me started. I don't even know what it is. I have tried to sort of give it a crack and I like the little funny things that it does to your face, but I don't know what else to do. So I ended up for a while just using it to take funny photos and then like, putting those funny photos on Twitter and I'm like, I just need these sort of filters on Twitter. This is just, it's just like my Instagram isn't Instagram. I use it as a filter for the photos and then I post those photos on Twitter. So it's literally just like a a filter program for me. It's not not actually something that I use as a social media platform. I go, oh, I just like to put a Valencia filter on that. So then I'll upload it to Twitter. So I'm, I'm very good at keeping those lives separate because I just don't know how to mix them very well. And I also don't know why anybody would care what I was doing, you know? So yeah, I do keep those things separate quite well. But isn't isn't that the underlying strength and inanity of social media that it doesn't matter that anybody cares about it. People that care will find me and care about it. But don't you feel like I my problem with that is that I have to care, I have to sort of see reason in why I'm doing something or see purpose in it or, you you know, and I find it very hard to find purpose in tweeting about my lunch or, you know, sending a photo of me like in a bikini. Like I just don't know what the purpose of that is. So, you know, for some people they like to send that stuff out there and mm-hmm. and for me I just I feel like it opens you up to an attention that just isn't an attention I'm after, you know. Um, sure. So I, I think that's kind of where it comes from um, for me. I just sort of, yeah, it's it's very different to the attention that – I'm kind of looking for, which hasn't served me terribly well in my professional life because, of course, <laughs> Twitter followers and Instagram followers are what you, you know, is, is uh, actually your CV these days, you know, rather than your actual Currency, skills. Yeah. Exactly. So it's probably not been the smartest of career moves for me, but it's just not something that, that really fits me very well. So I don't do a very good job of it. <laughs> 
And I guess like I understand the differential in motivation and why and those sorts of things. It comes down to my read on it is whether we're talking about brand Rachel Corbett or Rach. Mm, yeah, and I have a difficulty separating the two. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. I I find it very difficult to think about myself as a brand. You know, that's that's quite hard. I I because I think well, I'm just me. You know, yes. <laughs> I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't get how that works. And some people have a very clever mind to think about these sort of things. And and I've always just felt it's a bit. Um, I don't know, I can't get away from the tackiness or the ickiness of it, you know, that makes it quite difficult for me to cross mm. that line. So what I need to do is actually get so successful that I can hire people to do that for me. Oh, <laughs> That's maybe. what needs to happen because yep. then I don't need to think about it or deal with it. If somebody goes, hey, smile next to that llama, I'll go, okay. But if I say, hey, I'm going to grab my phone and take a photo of myself next to that llama, like it will never, ever happen. So um, <laughs> until that happens, I think the old, uh, the old underwhelming social profile will continue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a dinosaur you are in a digital age, Rachel Corbett. I know. I really was supposed to be born in another time. Like I really think, <laughs> you know, back in the old 80s when we were doing everything on sort of tape deck and writing mm. things down and nobody had a computer, I, I think that that was more my time. I just don't think I... I haven't quite caught up to the old social media. I mean, I, I'm the kid that sort of said that Twitter was going to be a phase, you know, and the only mm-hmm. reason that I have at Rachel Corbett in my Twitter profile is because Paul Murray, who has always been the king of jumping on a bandwagon at the right moment and understanding what's going to be big, said, mm-hmm. no, 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 I think this is going to be something. I think you need to get a profile. So I got a profile and then I never used it for years, but I had it. And then eventually when I was like, oh, okay, this hasn't gone away. Maybe I'll go back and use it. Yep. Then all of a sudden I had Rachel Corbett. I thought, Paul Murray, you and your tech genius, thank goodness for you. So, yeah, if it wasn't <laughs> for him, I would, I'd be like Rachel Corbett 377 or something. <laughs> <laughs> Rach Corbs, I yeah. underscore. <laughs> exactly. You had a really successful career with Paul as far as you guys on air and doing stuff on the radio. Um, in his move... Uh, I guess in part to AM and to, to television and stuff, do you still find opportunities to connect with him both on a work and a social level? Yeah, we still see each other. So we were doing a weekly podcast together. We did our drive show together and that mm-hmm. is certainly a great... I mean, that's the kind of environment where you see your on-air partner more than they see their real partner. You know, yeah. it's a real marriage. And Paul and I travelled a lot with our show. We went away to the States a couple of times. And so we had a lot of times where we were literally in each other's pockets for, you know, weeks on end and hours on end. And it really is, you know, because you're kind of walking the highway every single day, you're on air and you're quite exposed and vulnerable. So you build a very strong relationship with people that you have a good on-air sort of dynamic with because you, you know, you need each other so much to, you know, stop you you from sounding like an idiot or not, you know, you, you rely on that person so much. So you develop a very close friendship and Paul and I have certainly had that, that close friendship. Um, 
And then afterwards I went and sort of – he went into AM and I worked on another show with Merrick and uh, – Merrick mm-hmm. Watson, Joel Schiller. And so then when we were both off contract on radio, because obviously you can't, you know, do anything outside of the radio that you're doing, we went back and did that uh, – a podcast together for a couple of years. And so that was great because actually for us it was more like a weekly catch-up, you know. We got to hang yep. out for an hour or whatever a week and, and it was kind of like just hanging out for an hour, which was awesome. And now I'm I go on his um, – on his tele show Paul Murray live on Sky News I, I do that once a fortnight um, and so we see each other yes we see each other regularly still but it was really nice to have that sort of weekly we must do this sort of appointment um, you know so that you you got to see each other all the time meanwhile pardon me if you can hear some noise downstairs I think my roomies are at home um, but uh, but yeah so we've we've still definitely kept that friendship going because that's like a friendship that will last a lifetime you know that yeah. relationship that you build in the studio is just impossible to ever break so we will forever be like brother and sister. Were you guys introduced as uh, like to when, when your career together started or did you know each other before somebody said, hey, Paul and Rachel would be a great on air team? Unbelievably, we were an introduced marriage, an arranged marriage. So it's it's unbelievable, really, when you've worked long enough in the business, you realise that the arranged marriage is something that very rarely works first time. You know, mm. you sort of, you, it's it's hard to get that chemistry right and and to get the same people in a room that can do a show but that also really like each other. And and we were, I was sort of talking about another show at the time with the guys at Triple M, and something happened with that. I can't remember and. And so the boss there, um, Scott Muller, at the time, he put uh, Paul and I together. He said, oh, there's this guy. He was Paul was doing a night show at the time and yeah. he was supposed to be doing the next year was going to be him by himself and there was no intention for him to have a co-host. But, but Scott just thought, hang on a second, these two would kind of be good together. And we met, we had a coffee. We knew immediately we were on the same page. We really got along. We thought, oh, mm. okay, there's something here. And then Scott got us in the studio. We did about sort of 20 minutes, I think, in the studio loved every minute of it, like knew immediately, oh, this has got to be something. But of course there was just no budget to do it. So Scott yeah. Muller like worked so tirelessly to, you know, put something together that would actually, um, you know, that he could pitch to eventually the board. It had to go so high because they needed to get, you know, a small amount of money to pay me for a yearly salary. And then uh, and then eventually we got it across the line. So that's that's how it, it began. Um and yeah, it was it was uh, it was great. I mean, the minute we sat in the studio, we sort of thought, "Oh, we got to do this." And the, and we had so much fun together on air. We really just um, yeah, we really complemented each other well. I think. What one thing would you change about your life today? Oh, hey, what a deep question. We've just gone into all the hey, tell us about your Paulie brother and sister good times, mm. and then what would you change? Change gears. Oh, wee. Um, you know, oh, can I be so naff as to say nothing? Sure. Um, I've, I guess, uh, was there anything that I've regretted? I've been lucky in the sense that pretty early on, um, I, to get sort of deep for a minute, I think this kind of came from, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, I didn't have what would be described as a spectacular sort of, um, you know, post uh, pubescent life, you know, things in my family <clears throat> sort of happened that meant that I, 
I was I felt very trapped in a pretty mm-hmm. horrible situation and and so I find that at the time it was really awful but at the time I was very lucky because the way that I looked at that was that I'm going to make a very active choice when I can control my own life and do things for myself um, and I'm out on my own that I will make sure I'm never in a situation that I'm not happy in for very long. Yep. Um, and so I, I kind of made a decision pretty early in my life, probably in my late teens, that my sort of philosophy for life was that I wasn't going to have any sort of timeline or idea of where I wanted to go or what I was going to do. But my aim was going to be that I would try and make myself happy day by day. So then mm-hmm. the theory would be if I make myself happy day by day, then by the end I've by default made myself happy all the time. And I think that was probably a product of seeing my father like work very hard for this idea of a life that he had that ever never ended up eventuating because he lost his business. My, you know, my mum left, took us and all of this kind of stuff. And I had a very, very firsthand experience with what it is to live 30 years of your life waiting to get to that time when everything will be enjoyable and what happens when that happens and that dream doesn't come true and then all of a sudden you think well I've just lost that 30 years and I didn't get what I was so single-mindedly focused on and so really that I have really tried of course I've made mistakes plenty of them but I don't think that there's a single thing that I regret or a single decision that I've made that I think I wish I'd taken that I've been a, I've been a yes man to a fault. Like I've said yes to everything um, yeah. because I'm terrified, you know, that saying no to something is the opportunity that you're going to wish you'd taken or, you know. Um, so honestly, it might be, maybe it's a bit sad, but I, honestly, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. That doesn't mean that I'm exactly where I want to be right now. I feel like I've got a million miles to go, but so far the path to get here, I'm happy with all of the steps so far. Which is a totally fine response. I mean, we are the sum of the parts of the life that we've lived. And I guess the question isn't necessarily loaded, though I do like hearing it when people think it is, uh, around regret. It might just be, oh, there was this moment where, you know, this thing, I, I might have, if I'd made this decision, my life would have been entirely different. Or, you know, I don't like the way that I rely on chocolate to get through <laughs> things. You know, those <laughs> kinds of, it can, it can be a, a really broad conversation or it can be a really defined, no, I'm very comfortable where I am, but I'm not a complete thing. Mm, yeah, I feel like I've got so long to go, like so much further to go. You know, a lot of people, I'm 35 now, almost 36, and I'm always amazed at people around about my age who feel like time is running out because I've yep. always at every stage of my life, and maybe it was because, you know, growing up I always had older friends and things like that, I have always felt like I am young and that I have a long way to go. And even now, you know, I I really feel like I've got a long way to go for things I don't hear my biological clock ticking you know people tell me that's stupid but I go I'll just put the eggs on ice like I'm not you know and if it doesn't work I will deal with it another way like I've just you know I don't feel that essence of oh my god time's running out and I haven't done anything yet you know I've just never been that type of person who's felt those kind of pressures I just think well you know you change your mind things you change your way uh, your way as you go along um so, yeah, I've, I've, I certainly feel like I have so much further to go and I don't think – I think I'm one of those people who 
will never be satisfied. Like I think I will never, ever think I am successful or this is it or I have reached where I want to reach. I think even if I achieved everything on my to-do list, I would put 20,000 more things on the next day, you know. Mm. So I feel like I'm I'm never going to get to a stage where I feel satisfied, which I think annoys the crap out of my partner but um <laughs> but I think I think that's just me you know I just I'm always like what's next what's next what's next there's always another activity to sign up for that's it except there are no notice boards outside my door and that is my big problem with it how would that be for a Christmas present just to get brought outside Rach notice board Sign up to whatever you want, whatever you want. Oh, that is a great idea. I'm going to put that on the old Google Doc for presents that I have with my boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) We talk about, you know, social media, blah, 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 but I have a Google Doc for presents. (laughs) Because I hate buying presents that somebody doesn't want. I find the whole present buying thing so annoying. If you, Mm. I've never, my family, again, I'm, I'm not painting the greatest picture of them, but they weren't huge present buyers. And and really for the sort of like teens, I'd never got anything. I thought, you know, for Christmas or birthdays, it was very, it was pretty much not much. Um, so, I, and that never bothered me. It never, I, I honestly, I, I turn up to my birthday and I'm the person that forgets it's my birthday until somebody, I answer the phone on my birthday and somebody goes, happy birthday. And I go... Oh, it's my birthday. I totally forget. And I don't worry about presents. If somebody says happy birthday, I didn't buy your present. I'm like, absolutely no drama. I get embarrassed when people buy me presents. I don't know. I feel uncomfortable with the attention and stuff. So I don't buy it. But I love buying presents, but I just can't bear to buy. I would rather buy you nothing than something that you don't want. You know, Mm -hmm. so I think a Google Doc between loved ones is important because I would rather buy you that pair of shoes you like or that piece of art you want than go around and sort of find something that you go, ah, thanks, this is great. Um, So I think that's a smart thing to have within a relationship. Yeah. Look, gosh, if I could hire you to explain that to my parents, that would be spectacular. (laughs) I will give give it a shot. (laughs) It's it's just a nightmare, and already it started. I mean, we're recording. It's October. They sent through this um, catalogue that they found from somewhere. Uh, they sent it to our kids uh, and said, pick out something that you like and we'll get your name printed on it and send it back to you. Um, and our kids mm-hmm. just looked through and went, look, thanks, Grandma and Granda, but there's nothing in here that we like. No. Just give us an iTunes card. Yeah, yeah. See, with kids, you just got to go either the money in the card or the iTunes gift card or something. For adults, people go, oh, gift cards are so insensitive. You know, they're so impersonal. But for a kid, they're like, yeah, sweet. I can, you know, spend this on whatever I want. Oh, we've even we've even drawn up the physical email list and sent it, hey, this is the kind of thing that Luca would like. This is the kind of thing the other would like. How about you get them something of this? Or even more directly, how about you buy them this? That's the best way and, to do it. Oh, yeah, but the problem is that that may turn up, but then all this other crap turns up. Oh, yeah. Oh, like just overcompensating. You know the other thing about presents when you buy or you receive something that is unnecessary and people have just given it to you because they're like, well, I've got to give you something. 
the the pressure to display or wear or oh. use that thing when the giver is around can be a level of stress that nobody needs in their life. The idea that you have to go yep. through the mental catalogue of what did grandma give me for Christmas that I haven't put out, you know, that I've hidden in the back, like where do I need to put that vase so that she thinks that it's out like all the time, it's very, very stressful. Whereas if you just mm-hmm. go, you know what, don't get me anything if you can't think of something that I love and that people are okay with that but some people are very very big on presents and if you forget them or you don't get them for them they get very angry and that is something that I've just never ever sort of I've never um, been able to relate to that because I'm like meh doesn't matter I've got what do I need nothing I got I got everything I need (laughs) it's oh it's it's a constant source of trauma (laughs) Yeah, I think when it, when you get when you have kids too, it's like an extra level of stress, you know, because you need to buy those things, little little people, a lot of stuff, a mm. lot of stuff. Yeah, gosh, I mean, we've managed to get away with uh, buying them iPads, which they needed for school, but they knew they were then allowed to use outside of school time. Um, and there are some rules around it, you know, appropriate use of technology and stuff. Mm. Um, iPads are great. I mean, iPads are great present. What about the back in the days when we're sort of getting, you know, a pack of cards? Like, how good is getting an iPad? <laughs> I know. It's like all the packs of cards and every other game you ever wanted in one thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is the best. Rach, do you have any ink? No, nothing. And thank God for that. I mean, I, I always wanted it. I always, yes. <laughs> I always wanted it um, when I was younger because I, I was a piercings kid. I had like my labrette pierced, my nose pierced, my tongue what? pierced. Labrette, you know, the, the, that? that's where underneath the lip, you know, your chin. Basically, okay, just the, like the bit of skin, the bit of skin. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had that, and then when I when I hit thirty, I thought, what am I doing with all these bits of metal in my face? This looks ridiculous. But at the time, you know, I I wanted when I got those piercings, I did want tattoos, but I changed my mind so frequently that I never settled on anything. And now I'm very glad that I didn't because I actually. Um, I, I'm really glad I didn't get any tattoos. I would advise my kids not to get them. And I think you, you have a difficult argument to make if you are saying to your kid, do not get a tattoo and you have a tramp stamp. Mm. I think it's quite difficult to try and sell that when you've actually got one yourself. So I'm, I'm very glad that I, that I don't have any um, because, yeah, I just couldn't settle on an idea that I liked for long enough to, to go and get it that permanently etched on my skin. Would you ever still? No, no, never, never. I would, yeah, it holds absolutely no allure for me anymore. Um, I, th- I thought for a while, uh, you know, that I, it felt like when my my mum passed away last year and I, I felt like, oh, I would like to get something, you know, but uh, tattoos just aren't me, you know, so I thought, mm. oh, actually, I would just be sort of inking my skin. Do I, there are other ways that I can, you know, hold her close to me without sort of inking my skin when it's not very, like, I just felt like I was you know, thinking, oh, maybe her name was Sandra, like maybe an S or, you know, and I just thought, Mm. oh, this seems like I'm forcing it so badly. I think I'm (laughs) just going to leave it. You know, I think mum would honestly be looking down on me going, can you just quit with this tattoo stuff? Like I am mortified that you're going to get one. So (laughs) my mum would hate it. She would hate it. So I don't think it's, I don't think the best way to honour her memory is by going and getting something that she would absolutely despise. (laughs) I, I have such a pretty reasonable pain tolerance, uh, but I look at people 
who, well, I don't look at where they have, but they have some tattoos in some fairly intimate places and some piercings in some oh, fairly yeah. intimate places. And I just go, man, that is, that's pain. That is yeah. not, why would you do that to yourself? I don't know. I don't know what the thinking is behind that. You know, it's just that sort of, oh, I need to feel something. I go, oh, you need to go to therapy. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a, but some people love it, you know. Some people absolutely love it. But, yeah, it's just it's never really held that much attraction for me. Well, the NRL ruined sleeve tattoos, so I'm not sure what else I'll do now. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I always think, you know, you just as long as you just have something that can be covered up, you know, and I find, mm. like, the sleeves and the neck. I mean, who is getting the neck tattoo and the face tattoos? Oh, who yeah. Please, get, Mike Tyson. I know, just get a little something that you can hide away, not your whole body. But uh, some people, I, I will be interested in sort of 40 years' time when our generation is kind of growing up and all that, what those tats are going to look like on 70-year-old mm. people. That's what's going to really interest me because, you know, I've never seen us. I've never seen an elderly person with a lot of tats, but our generation, there will be a lot of people with a lot of tattoos and the, and I'll be interested to see what they look with their, you know, with their uh, bingo wings and their the piece of barbed wire around their arm that's gone a bit mm. saggy. So it'll be interesting to see when everybody's older. What reality TV show would you love to star in? None now. None. <laughs> none, none, none. Oh, you know, the, uh, yeah, I just, oh, I, none. <laughs> Maybe dancing, <laughs> with the, dancing with the stars. I do, I have always considered myself a bit of a dancer. Yeah. Um, uh, so I would do that, but just for the free dance lessons. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to turn up and there be no cameras, but just have free dance lessons. I just love the idea of a rigorous training program because you know the, the stars they always go in there and yeah. they sort of you know they're always in good shape, but ju- they just come out in unbelievable shape because they're dancing for like fourteen hours a day or something. Yes, I love the idea of going to Dancing with the Stars boot camp and then never actually having to be on the show. So. If you can like make that happen for me so that I could just do the dancing lessons and then maybe do the performance, but it's just for me and my dance partner and it's just for fun, then that that's that's a show I'd like to be on. Well, that's the other angle is that inevitably there's always talk of relationship foibles and issues and those sorts of things. And there have been some relationships that have come out of Dancing with the Stars for good and I for know. bad. I know. Being able to take your partner into that. And have that kind of boot camp experience would surely be a positive outcome, yeah? Oh, that'd be quite good. So you're so you're suggesting that me and my boyfriend go in and get dancing lessons that way rather than me getting a male partner and potentially falling in love with him and wanting to have a million babies with him and dumping my current mm-hmm. partner. Or even mm-hmm. not having any of those feelings but your boyfriend getting insanely jealous because of just how closely he's holding you and that lift he was a little bit something and oh and then he held you on the thing and the stuff. Yeah, I don't mean to be sort of, um, what's the word, stereotypical or, you know, to stereotype or anything, but I think for a woman, it's just genuinely, it might be like the extra surprise of the fact that the their male partner is not gay, because usually there's the expectation that gay men are the ones that can move very well, you know, they're the dancers, mm-hmm. they're the ones that have this sort of flourish that makes them perfectly suited for ballroom dancing, and then when you meet a man who's like, you know, the, the popular opinion is blokes really can't dance like straight men can't dance you know so I think like maybe you're in that sort of mode and you think oh this is going to be totally fine it's going to be like me you know brother and sister dancing and then you realize oh my goodness 
you like ladies. Well, this takes on a whole new level mm. of sort of interest, you know. So I don't know whether that... But there's only sort of one relationship that's come out of it long term, hasn't it? Most of the time they just break up marriages when they go on there. But Rachel Finch, is it? She's she's ended up... I think she's yes. had babies with yes. her dance partner or something. So it can have a happy ending. Yeah, it certainly can. There's easily three or four that come to mind. I mean... It's not a great outcome, but Adam Brand, country music star. I don't know if he was broken up, but he certainly got into a relationship with his dance partner and married her, and they've since broken up. Um, But, yeah, there there was – look, it's it's dangerous territory. You're concerningly across this, but you are a man who knows his television, so I will allow you the pass for that. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is your bread and butter, so it's not just that it's just a a, a very freaky interest of yours that you seem to know every single relationship that's been born out of Dancing with the Stars. I know this is what you do, so I will let you. I will let you have that. (laughs) I I don't ever profess to know everything about television, Rach. I just know lots of things about lots of it. Yeah, yeah. It's a good – I mean, it's a good – you'd be great to have a trivia. You'd be really good to have a trivia because there's no shortage of TV questions. Look, I like to think so. But no one ever seems to want to take me up on it. Ah, oh, jeez. Well, we'll have to we'll have to fix that for sure. To their endless loss, I say. Exactly. Exactly. What are you going to achieve in the next twelve months, Rachel Corbett? Oh, that is an excellent question. Uh, so I've recently released a podcasting school online, mm-hmm. Pod School. So hopefully, I will make that a success. Um, I. God, what else is on the to-do list for the coming year? Um, I have a few bits and pieces of sort of telly stuff that's bubbling away in the background. I've got another podcast that I'm sort of starting to record now that I'm hoping will be out soon and will go into the new year. And I have a few ideas. I mean, I'm the kid with a million notepads everywhere and 50,000 bazillion ideas. So I'm trying to get better at making some of those ideas actually come to fruition rather than just having a million ideas and then housing them on notepads forever uh, forever and ever <laughs> but I always think like the one thing that I really enjoy about my life and the things that I do is that I genuinely could not tell you where I will be in six months or a year so that uncertainty and that sort of like oh what will it be where will I be what will I be doing I know that I'm going to be working on pod school I know that I'm going to be sort of working on another couple of podcasts I know that I'll be doing the regular work that I'm doing but who knows who knows? Anything could happen. The sky is the limit. We have barely scratched the surface, Rach. I would love to, to find the chance, hopefully not as long as it took us to arrange this one, but at some point in the future, to touch back in with you, talk more about Pod School, to talk about um, you know these podcast ideas and, and just broader Corbett life. I would love to. It would be my absolute pleasure. And here is uh, here's hoping... That we haven't, I haven't, not we, I haven't put the old jinx on it. And that when we talk again for the next podcast episode, you're not saying, how'd that pod school thing go? And I say, it's in the trash can (laughs) with the other ideas that didn't work. So here's hoping that I haven't jinxed it and it's a positive and joyous conversation. But you know, the one thing I will say is that I've got no regrets. So that's the main thing. The good news is, Rach, is that there's always another notice board and there's always more activities. That's it. There's always something more to do, that is for sure. Hey, Rachel. Yes. Thank you so much for the chance to speak with you today. Please know the things that you said are very special and you're highly valued. Thank you. Oh, how are you? We 
That is delightful. It has been a joy to speak to you, Steve. I'm really, uh, really glad we got the chance to catch up and I will come back on the potty anytime. Lock and load that thing. Are there, well, given the talk of Brand Corbett earlier, are there mm. social accounts you would want people to follow, know about, obsess over? Oh, yes, please come and see things that I'm not tweeting at, at <laughs> Rachel Corbett. <laughs> I mean, really, I'm not even going to bother with the Insta because I post on it about once a year, so it's not even worth it. And I believe my Facebook page is Rach Corbett, but you can find everything at rachelcorbett.com.au. It's all mushed there in one sort of easy-to-find little package. Including the connections to all your podcasting stuff? Exactly. All of that stuff is there, yes. It's a, a bit of a mishmash of everything. Sounds a lot like life. That's it, exactly, exactly. It's just a little small, it's like a bubble and squeak, an online bubble and squeak. There is no pumpkin in bubble and squeak. <laughs> what? No. It's everything that's in the fridge. No, it's just leftovers. If you've got pumpkin, yeah, you can put it in. There's no. definitely corn in there. Don't tell me you don't put corn in your that's, bubble and That's squeak. how you generate the corn regenerator inside your stomach. You have to feed oh, what, the from corn bu- regenerator corn. <laughs> from bubble and squeak? From something, however you have it. <laughs> Everyone has to have corn in their diet because no matter who you are, when you do have that moment that you do vomit, there's always corn. There's always carrot too. There's always carrot. That's it's amazing. True. Mm, Perfectly it diced. Yeah. What, what, an, what an amazing sort of, you know, life mystery to end on, Steve. School camps have a lot to answer for. <laughs> Indeed they do. This has been Humans of Twitter, and I can confirm that at Rachel Corbett is indeed human.